the whole history, there's a whole history in our faith, of, obviously, in the Old Testament of the desert. And uh, the desert is a forbidding place, but it's also a place of um, I'm going to say like tearing, tearing apart false uh, dependencies. Because you have to, in the desert, you have to absolutely depend on God. That's where the manna all came from. The whole story of the manna every morning was, I'll take care of you. Providential fatherhood, I'll take care of you. So the desert is a place of letting God free you from attachments that you think are feeding you, but they are in fact draining you. And so this day you know, is given to you as desert so you can feel your attachment to that which is other than life-giving sources. That's why it's painful sometimes to sit in the silence because you're feeling your dependencies on everything other than communion with God. That's why people don't want to die. When people die, a psychiatrist told me once who worked in a hospice unit that they either go out like a candle being blown out or they go out kicking and screaming. And they go out kicking and screaming because their whole identity is attached to what they're leaving rather than what's coming. And those who go out like a candle being blown out, they're already attached to what's coming. They've already successfully negotiated the tearing. And they're at peace because, as I said earlier, they've already been in heaven. They've been living in heaven. So the culmination of heaven uh, is a good thing for them. And plus, as we said, nothing that you love is ever lost in God. So sometimes people will say, yeah, but you should be sad because your wife is still alive. But the saint knows that the wife lives in Christ. See, again, nothing's lost. Babies, nothing's lost. Everything's in God. Everything he created, he never takes back. That's why there's a hell to some extent. There's a hell only because whatever God chose to create, he never says no to it. He's only, he only says yes. And so there's a hell because we said no to God. Not because God said no to us. It's almost like, hey, I created you. I've been work. I've been work, work with me, buddy. Come on, work with me. And we say, no, I don't want to work with you. Okay, well then, hell. Because I'm not going to obliterate you. There was a series of theologians at one point who thought that after death, we just go out of existence. But that would go against the very nature of God who creates all good things. And and. To some extent, even the people that are in hell are in uh, God's love because he keeps them in existence. It's like a pilot light in an oven. It's still there. It's not the great flame that's being experienced in heaven, but yeah, God still loves those people. So we are either you know, heading toward this fulfillment in God 
or we're getting or we're stumbling in these attachments that are less satisfying, ultimately less satisfying, but powerful. I'm wor- working always through my addiction to double stuffed Oreos. Now that sounds like you know kind of an anemic addiction, but it's really really powerful. I don't, I don't even like them. Like when I eat them now, they taste terrible. But I still eat them because they're that double icing. But the crackers themselves, are uh, they've come to mean almost failure to me, which probably means I eat them more because I feel sad about myself. So he said, oh, I hate these things. Oh, I'll eat more of them, especially because God created milk. And so... I remember one day saying, you know, I don't think I'll eat my usual row of double stuffed Oreos as I'm sitting alone in my house at night, you know, because a friend of mine is going to have an operation and I, I'll offer that up for him. And I couldn't do it. I ate half a row. <laughs> you know, that's pathetic. Your friend's in the hospital. Mingle your sacrifice with love and intercessory prayer for him so that God's, you know, great grace will be released in him. No, I think I'll have five double-stuffed Oreos instead because that's really what I want. I want that taste. I want the taste of fat and sugar in my mouth. And that taste of fat and sugar is more important than your operation. I'm your friend. That's pathetic, right? This is why Jesus is a savior and not a coach. People sometimes reduce Jesus as a moral coach. Here's the Ten Commandments. You can do it. We, that we're so weak inside. We don't need a coach. We need someone who's in us. Moving. Right? The Holy Spirit, the whole mystery of Jesus' love. That's what a Savior is. A Savior is doing the work, working out the relationship. Jesus is not a coach outside saying, Good job, you went to Mass on Sunday. Thanks. He's in you trying to help you to actually reject what is in the way of holy communion. That's why we have to call upon him in our weakness and in our pathetic uh, state. Now, we could all go around the church and you, go ahead, you tell me your Oreo story. This, I mean, five Oreos are better than my intercessory prayer for a friend. Yeah, it, it's all like a big AA meeting here, you know. Could all stand up and just say, hey, I'm Jim. Uh, I like Oreos more than you. Hey, Jim. That's that's how pathetic we are. That's how fallen we are. I like these things more than God. I like these things more than life itself. Sad. But Jesus, right in his great mercy, understands how far we have fallen. And so the most important thing he asks of us is desire. He wants to sort of flip that desire for the Oreos to him. He, he doesn't want you to, you know, become some type of robot. 
He wants the passion you have for Oreos to be for him. And that's what he's working out if we give it to him in the Eucharist. He's working out that shifting of the passions. He's flattening our desire for sin, and he's stirring our desire for him. If we're intentional about it, all those Eucharists that you're receiving should have an effect. You've been alive for a long time, some of you. They're not inert. But we have to have an engaged intentionality when we receive him. You know, Jesus, I would like you to flatten my desire for X. It's had quite a hold on me for many years. And those, all those participation in the Eucharist will do that. Except sometimes there is this mysterious thorn in the side that St. Paul talked about, where it looks like you accompany people for decades and they say the same thing. They got the thorn in their side like St. Paul. You know, I've always had some type of attachment toward, I don't know, consumerism of some, some kind, uh, food of some kind, sex, drink, rock and roll, whatever it is. I can't get it out of my side. It's stuck there. And then God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Keep going. Keep trying. Keep moving. Keep offering it to me. Don't let the thorn in your side be the occasion for going deeper into isolation. Just the opposite. Let the thorn in your side draw you closer to me. That's what all that eating at table was about with Jesus. He wanted to make sure that people weren't going far from him, sin defining them. He wanted the relationship to define him. Notice even in the theology of worship in our own church, if you're in mortal sin, the church says basically, don't come up and receive, but come. Come, stay in his presence. Hear the word proclaimed. Pray. Be in the community. This is for mortal sinners. Come. The church never says, go, you're, you're beyond the pale, sorry. It always says, come. Yes, there's a reality here. You're in mortal sin. So you can't lie. You can't say you're available to receive intimacy. You're not. Of course, you can come up and receive, but it's, it's inert. You can't. The sin is blocking the intimacy. But the church wants you here because it believes that grace is larger than the sacraments and can call you back to repentance. It wants you to hear the word of God preached and proclaimed. And it wants you to stay in fellowship with other Christians who are on the way to conversion. And it's hoping that if you keep coming to Mass, desire will be inflamed. I want that. I want that again. Desire inflamed. I'm tired of the lies of my sinful, habitual patterns. And I think I want rest. I think I want God. So desire is very, very important. And you have to desire newness in the relationship you have with God, a new kind of prayer, and then God's going to bless this desire. And the new kind of prayer, of course, we could just simply call personal. 
and personal prayer has a lot to do with complete openness to what's in your heart. One of the ways that desire is inflamed is if you think about God and all the wonderful things he's done for you. All the wonderful things he's given to you. And of course, if we don't meditate, and that's all that I'm describing is meditation, then gratitude slips away and you become ungrateful because literally the graces are coming so fast and furious we can't even contain them. But they're subtle, some of them. That's why we forget them. Like you can go, go on a whole two-day retreat like this and go home and someone will say, well, what'd you, well what happened on that retreat? What'd you do? I was like, uh, I don't know. I ate cookies and listened to this guy on audio, the same guy who talked to us in the church. That was your retreat? Yeah. That can happen because we're weak and broken, self-centered. What'd you get out of that? I don't know. And yet God has been pummeling you with grace since you showed up. Because he knows he's got you. This is it. This is my only chance. Once they leave, boom. Back to the internet. I lost the chance. Be subtle. You missed subtle. You missed the relationship. If your wife is amorous one night, she doesn't normally come naked to the dinner table, right? But she will do maybe one less button. You missed that button. You missed it, buddy. You missed it. Or she'll put on perfume that she knows you like, but you're too stupid to even recognize it. You missed it. Missed what? And, you know, fat, dumb, and happy. Why didn't you come to the table naked with that perfume on? Then I would have known. Oh, you're so stupid. Right? You're so stupid. You missed it. And to some extent, God is like that. He's constantly giving, but he's giving in such a subtle way that the whole relationship can be missed because we're not, what? Paying attention. We're so involved in the self, we're not beholding and watching, contemplating, receiving, listening, paying attention. And we miss it. And then he'll run a movie, this is my imagination, when we're dead, he'll run a movie on all the graces he gave us. And we'll just be so humiliated. That's a, you know, it's a, it's a room in purgatory. It's called your humiliation room. It's like, oh, you wanted me to be a saint. Well, why didn't you try harder, God? Oh, sit down, Jim. Roll it. And then we'll just keep, oh my gosh, you did that, you did that. You, you gave me that, you gave me that. And it'll be like, stop. And he'll be, no, no, purgatory's not over yet. You're going to watch this until your gratitude is so deep, you start celebrating my love, which is all I wanted you to do while you were alive. But I understand the internet was important. So this subtlety of God 
is his modus operandi. While we're waiting around for a stigmata, he's loving us in many, many other ways. Many, many. Oh, why didn't you give me the stigmata? I was waiting. I was hoping. No, I, I gave you everything else. Desire. Do you desire? Is it intentional? What level of relationship do you want? I remember when I was going to ask Marianne to marry me, I went home and I was going to tell my parents, and I, my mother was at the table. She was drinking some tea, and um, I said, Hey, Mom, Dad, I'm going to ask Marianne to marry me. And they said, Oh, we know that. You never treated any human being the way you treated her. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. Can I ask you for some advice? Now, at that point, my mother had been married 30-something years with seven kids. So I figured she was an expert. She said, yeah. I said, well, what, what is marriage? What is this all about? And she just drank her tea and put a little sugar in it and drank it again. And then she looked at me and she just said, pay attention. That's it. The last fight you had is because one of you didn't pay attention. You were distracted. You were usually distracted by the self. Union only occurs when you pay attention. And I hate to say this, guys, but we're in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, so we've got to say truthful things. When the woman next to you says, listen to me, please do it. Not as an occasional hobby or gesture, but as a dispositional stance toward her. Because there's something in the woman that gets there faster than us. We get there, but they get there faster than us in the preservation of the bond. What's the preservation of the bond? Relationships. And they know intuitively the way that that bond is preserved. Listening. And then if you listen, and if you pay attention, then the bond is preserved. So I don't mean to start fart, uh, uh, fights in the car ride home, but um, yeah, they're right. We're wrong. We don't listen very well. And it is a linchpin to the relationship. Now, the reason we struggle in prayer, same reason. We don't listen to God, which is why some people think God is a woman, but I don't believe it. Listening to God is the linchpin to communion. And yes, listening is a lot of stuff you're not interested in. Right? So yeah. It's Helen's birthday, Jim. Helen's 65 years old. She works down at the soup kitchen. She wears gingham dresses. She likes to drink coffee and put a little cocaine in it. Wah, 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 wah. I'm really not that interested. But the key, and this is the jujitsu move, right, of the Holy Spirit, you're supposed to be interested in the one who's talking. 
Yeah, I know, but I have a hard time when the content is so boring. And the movement of love is to move through the content. Notice, the key to my being intimate with you is that you continually entertain me. That's quite a standard for marriage. Rather than, I, am, I want to be with you. And if it's good for you, and here's the kicker, right? If it's good for you to talk about this woman in the gingham dress who likes cocaine, I will listen to you. If it's good for you. See the emphasis? If it's good for you. That's the part we hate. That's why Jesus is not a moral coach. He's a savior. Because that movement from thinking of the good of your spouse, from thinking only of the self, is Herculean. It's an incredible movement. It's called conversion. From being fascinated with the self to being fascinated with the good of the other. You know what? She's interested in this lady. I'll let her talk. That's level one. Level two is, whatever she's talking about, I don't care. Because I reverence her. Right? And level three is, don't you want to say boring things to me that will make you happy? Right? That's a beautiful marriage. So when you come home at night, your husband should anticipate and ask you that question. Do you want to say anything boring to me so that I can love you disinterestedly? And the woman will, just, the woman will say, where's the perfume, buddy? Right? She's going to fall in love with you over again. Where's the perfume, man? Honey, don't you want to bore me tonight so that I can will your good? Wow. That's level three. It's level three. That's just before the stigmata. But it's, it's coming. <laughs> level four, that's Jesus' business. But you can get, you can get there. I married you because I was fascinated with you. Okay, what took that fascination away? It's like the vows. I'm going to freely vow to you that I'll stay with you forever. And the question of divorce is, what took your freedom from you? I thought you were free on your wedding day. What took, came in and took that freedom from you? I'm yours forever. What took that freedom from you? How did it get there? Why did you let it? Because on this day you were free, your wedding day. Who took your freedom from you? You want to guard that freedom. You want to guard that yes. And you want to guard the fascination. Um, falling in love sometimes is easy. Go around the church, tell us how you fell in love. Staying in love is the work of marriage. Falling to staying. And staying is participatory. Staying in love is participatory. You can't have an inert factor in the room with you while you're actively trying to stay in love. The inert factor could be your wife or your husband. It's both participatory. What are you doing? We're staying in love. Why is that so hard? Why couldn't it be natural? Because he's a sinner. She's a sinner. I married a sinner. 
Why? Because they're the only ones available. You can't, there's no one else available, right? And because they're sinners, it's hard to stay in love with them. In the beginning, it's easy because sometimes we, we kind of uh, suffer through ecstatic love. It's still a suffering, but you're still ecstatic. After 30 years, you're not really ecstatic anymore. Like the other night, Marianne and I realized I left the house and just said, bye. She said, bye. And I was going away for three days. So I was like, where's the ecstasy, buddy? Right? You can't, it's not ecstatic anymore. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing to say that. But it's not there. You know, I didn't run up the stairs and embrace her. Give her one of these kisses. Bend her over, you know. And here you go, baby. It's going to be three days. I did that when I was 20-something. 60, if I do that, I'm thinking, I'm going to hurt my back. So it's like, there's, a, there's an ecstatic, right? In the beginning, it's ecstatic, right? I don't mean to scandalize the young ones here. That happens. That happens. As you progress, sometimes a pillow looks better than your naked wife, I have to tell you. It's like, honey, I, th- I think I just want to sleep. That's old age. It'll come. I don't want to scandalize you, though. Ecstasy and suffering in the ecstasy, right? So when we first met each other, I liked to hike. I lived in New York. She lived in, well, she lived in Connecticut on the border in New York. But I'd go hiking in the mountains near the Hudson River. And, and I'd say, I'm going to go hiking. You want to come? And she's like, yeah. I said, this is going to work out, baby. And then she would say, oh, I like to go to flea markets. You go to flea markets? I was, I go all the time. So when we were dating, I'd go to flea markets. She'd go hiking. Once we got married, boom. You want the, the hiking shoes she bought? I'll give them to you. They're still in the box. That's it. It ended. It dried up. It's like, hey, you want to go hiking? No, not really. Hey, you want to go to that flea market? I'm kind of busy right now. The ecstasy disseminated and just the suffering reappeared. I, I never liked hiking anyway. And that ego is saying, I'm not going to do that. I already got the guy. Flea markets? What is that? Some girly way to spend an afternoon? Nah, not doing that. I love you, but nah. And then there's this sense of, oh my gosh, look, we're going away, right? And then this is what saves marriages or they end? Someone makes a decision. What's the decision? I better intentionally suffer. In other words, I better stay in love or it ain't working. And again, on earth, love always takes the form of the cross. In heaven, freely circulation. That's ecstasy. Whoopee! That's why heaven is happiness. Because it's easy to give the self on earth, love, love takes the form of the cross. You want to go to the flea market? Ten years into the relationship? I guess. And pout like a little boy. No, but I'm trying to do what? Trying to stay in love. Want to, want to go hiking? I don't know. Can we watch a hiking show on TV? Okay. 
All right, we'll watch a hiking show on TV. Look, isn't that cute? She's trying. You got to try to stay in love. Why? Because it's painful. Why? Because you're married to a sinner and you're a sinner. And if nobody tries and nobody thinks that the relationship is bigger than the suffering, then the relationship dissipates. And that's the key question, right? Is the relationship bigger than the suffering? And you have to have that big vision. Otherwise, all the pain in the relationship comes to define the relationship. Again, this is why people leave each other. Because you no longer define the relationship. The pain you cause me defines the relationship. And you're always going to be with a painful person. Because you're always going to be with a sinner. Now, we're not talking about extreme abuse where people have to separate or they'll be uh, you know, harmed in some way. Talking about normal, natural sinners living together and causing each other disturbances, like fighting over a pot, like being too lazy to get up and do something that needs to be done, like forgetting birthdays, which is a mortal sin. Which I did that once, now it was many years ago, and I was busy. I have lots of excuses. Can't you hear your husband's voice in this? Lots of excuses. But these things are forgivable, right? Because you live with a sinner. And what's bigger than the sin? The relationship. Staying in love. And a lot of times that's going to take a transcendental or supernatural intervention called prayer. You're going to have to pray your way through living with this guy. Pray your way through living with this girl. She ain't doing it on your own power. Now, for the female, at least, in popular parlance, the unforgivable sin is adultery. I used to teach a marriage course, and I would always ask the class, this was at an all-woman's college, and I would just say, what's the unforgivable sin for marriage? Mm, adultery. What are you going to do if he commits adultery? Out. What does that mean? Divorce. Immediately. Wow. Okay, so let's change the vows, ladies. Let's write new vows. I take you, Herbert, until you cheat on me. No, we don't want to write those vows. Why? You just said it. You're liars. You said if he, Herbert cheats on you, he's done. But nobody wanted new vows. What's with that? There's some kind of almost, almost sacred hope there. The vows express a sacred hope. I've worked with a number of women who were victims of adultery. And I have to tell you, it's probably the most painful uh, wound in their heart ever. I would say it's very close, if not equal, with the death of a child or a baby. That this is such a terrible act have someone cheat. Unforgivable. And yet, I have seen, and I'm not going to say normally, because in America it's not normal at all, but I have seen, witnessed, and been in awe of women who have worked through that wound to reconciliation 
And not only reconciliation, but the deepest of peace in staying with the man who offended them. But only one way, by suffering the implantation of the cross into their heart. Years of work with Jesus. Not years of counseling, not years of therapy. Years of work with Jesus enabled them to forgive supernaturally. So when we say we want to stay in love, what we're doing is we're guarding the communion. Because satanic forces are always trying to take us apart from the extreme of adultery to minor, smaller insults, forgetting birthdays, not listening. These are the beginnings of the fraying around the edges of the relationship. And so we're called to guard the communion. And of course, Jesus wants to conspire with us to guard the communion. We're not on our own in that. So these little ways, and of course, little ways, it's like when someone comes to look at your chimney to see if it's falling apart, right? To do a little tuck work on it. And he tells you the price and you say, I don't think I I need it that bad. And then he kind of laughs and gets in his car. Because he knows that pretty soon he'll be building me a new chimney. And so when, when I say to you, you guys better at least spend 15 to 20 minutes each day talking unobstructed about your interior feelings, thoughts, dreams, desires. And you better do it every day. And you look and say, well, that's going to cost me 15, 20 minutes. I don't think I want that. Okay, then I'll see you in spiritual direction for adultery. Because believe me, your human heart needs it. Whether you want it or not, you need it. And that's what, how it begins. That's how it begins with emotional adultery. Because the heart needs it. Could be you going to your favorite bartender or you hanging out with your favorite girlfriends. But you are pouring your heart out to someone other than the one that Christ gave you. Why is that? And mostly it's because there's some pain in me obstructing vulnerability. And I'm afraid if I go into that pain, I'm going to cry or get angry or get sad. Some emotion that might make me feel out of control. And so I resist intimacy and I just negotiate daily existence. In other words, I I negotiate an economic daily existence with you. We both pool our resources and we pay the mortgage. And then the food appears somehow, and then we go watch Netflix there. But the intimacy, the lifeblood of the bond, Satan is dancing around and saying, we're fraying it. It's coming apart. They don't know it yet. It is. Why? Because they will not spend face time, intentional, 20 minutes, complete vulnerability. 
Now notice how that mimics prayer. It's the same thing. 20 minutes with Jesus, complete vulnerability. 20 minutes with your spouse, complete vulnerability. Marianne and I first softened this whole 20-minute thing by adding alcohol to it. And it really was fun. And at 5 o'clock today, if I wasn't here, I would be having a Jameson and ginger ale, and she would be having Pinot Noir at 5 p.m. Because that's what saved our marriage 33 years ago. When I was busily being involved with Jim, she conspired to save it by literally making me come home for a happy hour. And the way she made me do it was to scare me. And she scared me by saying this. Hey, our marriage stinks. You're the cause. Here's how you're going to fix it. You're coming home every day at 5 p.m. We're going to have a happy hour and we're going to talk and you're going to listen and then we're going to talk. Then I'll listen and then we'll talk. And I said, I am not coming home every day. I am a busy, important man. I have lots of things to do. Jesus is counting on me to save the world. So you'll have to wait. And then she gave a look that I believe only a woman can give to a man. And that look, which I cannot say in front of the Blessed Sacrament, but it makes you frightened unto certain bowel movements. And so I came home at 5 p.m. Because that's how scared I was. And that's what saved the marriage. I hated it the first day I was there. I resented it. But then after a while, I started enjoying the alcohol. Not her, the alcohol. I started taking a drink, and then she always had snacks. So I enjoyed the snacks as well. So in the beginning, I started softening up through the alcohol and the snacks. But I showed up because I was afraid. What was she doing? She was staying in love. Staying in love. You guys have to do that. Because no one else is going to support you in the culture. In fact, there's a whole business to probably try and tear you apart. Government doesn't care whether you stay. Counselors don't care. There's only one person who cares, and that's the one who brought you together. And that's God. And a lot of times we leave him out of trying to stay in love. But he's the only one rooting for you. And hopefully you're rooting for each other. So let's be with Jesus just for a minute and receive what he's giving us. There's a whole section in the book out there in the hallway where I try to reduce both prayer, meditation, and then being with each other as a couple into three little categories. Behold, listen, forgive. Behold, listen, forgive. And behold is probably the most important one because once you behold, 
then you, you're opening to listen. And of course, once you've beheld and you're listening, the intimacy deepens, so then you're more open to forgive. So the beholding, getting that right, is, is first. And maybe this is a masculine perspective, and if it was a woman, it would be a different book, but I sense I, that's good for both genders. But the beholding is taking your spouse as a whole, rather than just the parts that annoy you. And a lot of times we reduce our spouse to the parts that annoy me. And you can see this, for those of you who are parents, maybe more clearly with your kids. So my son, I mean, literally, I used to think, well, this must be a joke, but it's not. I could not see the floor of his room. It was just clothing. I didn't know whether it was wood floor or vinyl floor, carpeted. And every time, and this, of course, since he experienced puberty and adolescence, and during that time of puberty and adolescence, you know, all humanity dissipates in a human being, and he becomes this foreign entity. And it starts then, and of course, this is when parents have to cling to the cross and say, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you. This is what parents say to teenagers. And the floor is just a mess. And every day I was going to clean the floor up. And then you want to threaten. And then you just give up. And the relationship suffered because I kept defining him by his faults. He's the kid who doesn't listen. He's the kid who's got no floor but clothing. And now he's in college and I'm like, where is he? And I open the door and the floor is clean. And I miss him. Right? Because he was more than the pain he caused me. He's still causing me pain, but it's different. It's more than the pain he caused me. Who was? The mystery of who he was. The mystery of who he is. And so if we keep reducing our spouse to the pain they call us, uh, cause us, we're going to reduce that relationship to an intolerance that will wish they were gone. And then that will perhaps give us that relationship that I described before of just economic arrangements that suit what we need, but no more communion. Well, one of my kids once was little, it was about three years old, and I was sitting in a room in my house, and I was sitting in a chair, and he wandered in with some Legos, and he sat down in front of me and started playing them. And I just looked at him and said, oh, there he is. And then I went back to reading. And then I looked over what I was reading, and I saw him again sitting on the floor playing with the Legos. And something really shifted in me where all I can say is I fell in love with him. And I didn't fall in love with him in a nondescript way. I fell in love with his being the mystery of who he was, was reaching me. And seeing turned into beholding. And literally beholding is holding someone in your being. It's not just noticing them, looking at them. It's allowing them to affect you so deeply that they enter you. The mystery of who they are.
And every so often you should look at your spouse that way. Otherwise we are in great danger of reducing who they are to the discrete acts of annoyance that they cause us. And we have to recover the whole because they're always going to have discrete acts of annoyance because we're fallen creatures. And if we let that overwhelm us and define us, it's harder to find communion again. One of my other children once, they used to have these things called snugglies. I don't know if they still have them, but they were like a backwards backpack and you put a baby in the front and they hang on the front of you. And so we were in the park one day and I was swinging on a swing and my other son was going up and down the slide and I was watching him and the newborn baby was in the snuggly and I put my hand on his back of his head and I pressed his head to my heart and I just felt his head. And I beheld the mystery of him. And I always say that was the day I became his father. Why? Because I fell in love with him. You can't reduce your spouse to a pragmatic helpmate. We have to, on occasion, meditate on their mystery. One of the great meditations that helped me with Marianne is to realize that every day of her life, she's choosing to be with me. It's a real free choice, especially in this culture where no one would care if she left. And to meditate on every day her staying gives birth to a gratitude in me that is beyond description. Every day she stays, she chooses to stay. That's the mystery you want to behold. Because we take it for granted. And in the rush of the day and all the activity, Satan wants to play with that activity to upset that consciousness. The consciousness of gratitude, of the mystery that he is, the mystery that she is. So it's good to meditate upon the mysteries of Jesus. You should read the scripture every day. And it's good to meditate upon the mysteries of the one sitting next to you. Because when you meditate upon these things, it inflames a new love. That's how you stay in love. Not taking each other for granted. Or as my mother said, pay attention. Pay attention to the mystery. The second one is listening. We already talked about that a little bit, but there is a great mystery to listening imperceptibly. That's what my wife was doing, whether she knew it fully, I, I don't think so, but it was a conspiracy of her heart to get us one-on-one -on -one so that we could listen to each other because in listening, that's the doorway to enter. That's how we enter each other, listening. Self-revelation is met by the receptive heart of the listener. And that's called intimacy. Self-revelation is met by the receptive heart of the listener. No self-revelation, no intimacy. No receptive heart, no intimacy.
And again, intuitively, women, maybe they can't articulate it, but they understand this. So, you know, I'll be just like fat, dumb, and happy, you know, all day around the house, you know. And then I'll come up and I'll grab her and I'll try and hug her and say, let's go, baby. And she'll be like, get away. You know, it's almost like I'm not a prostitute. You didn't talk to me all day. You didn't listen to me all day. You didn't do anything I asked you to do all day. And now you want this? What are you, nuts? And of course the answer is, yes. I am nuts. Because I don't get the connections. But that is the connection. The connection is, I reveal myself only to the one who receives. And I receive, and I want to receive. So please, please, Reveal yourself. That's the faint um, symbol or the faint reflection of the Trinity. That's why, that's why our, ma- our sacrament is a sacrament. Because we are faintly referencing the Trinity. That's what the Trinity does all day. Self-revelation, receptivity. Receptivity, self-revelation. And the interesting thing about this, what happens? when that self-revelation is complete and that receptivity is complete? What happens when the whole person is involved in that? Right? Life. Life happens. Babies. Yeah. That's what happens. That's that's why there's a creation. Because when the Father gave himself completely to the Son, the Son gave him completely to the Father, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon creation... In other words, the love was, was, was fecundity. It was life-giving. It was overflowing into a creation outside of God. That's what love is. That's what love does. Love ends in life. And there were little tiny mirrors of that in our marriage. Little tiny reflections of that. That huge circulation of love that is God. Listen. And then later on, we'll talk about the last one, which is forgiveness. Behold, take the whole person in. Do not let him or her become defined by the pain. And most of the time, the pain our spouse causes us is the pain that he or she is carrying that they don't know what to do with it and really need healing. And so our empathy is important there. And the beautiful thing, too, in um, page, if you got your notes still, but page three, you may just want to meditate on page three, that, that incredible freedom of the vows, the incredible freedom of the vows. Because the vows create the most secure arena for this self-revelation and this reception. Now, women used to know this intuitively about babies, which was, hey, give me a ring and say you're going to die with me before I have sex with you and have babies. Now, I don't know what's happening. There's a mental illness where people just live together and have babies and then leave each other. But there was maybe a cultural appropriation which was stronger where someone said, you have to stay if the complete self-offering is going to be made. Because I need the security of the vows 
to not only give you myself, my feelings, my thoughts, my ideas, my desires, my babies. I need the security of the vows. Because I need someone who's going to say, I'm not going anywhere. You can actually become a new person. Which remember, one of the most important things about Christian marriage is that we suffer one another's conversions. You know, even more powerful than the parent. We suffer one another's conversion. We live with each other from the time we meet to the time we die. And suffering that conversion is made possible because you said at this altar, I'm not going anywhere. And so now I can feel freedom to grow, change, morally convert, spiritually convert, because I know it's safe with you. Because you promised that you would not go anywhere. And that promise is important because uh, for those who are aware of their faults, to constantly have people leave them because of their faults makes them into sociopaths. If every time you committed a fault, someone left you, your loneliness would be compounded upon compounded, and you'd become a sociopath. Isolation and loneliness is one of our greatest evils in our culture today because people will not stand the pain of other person's conversions. Once you start causing me pain, I leave. Okay, maybe there's someone else out there. Hey, Harry, you want to stay with me for a while? Yeah. Oh, you caused me pain. I'm leaving too. And then there's just serial relationships, if you want, ended by pain. Well, it's impossible then. We're, con- we're just condemned to loneliness. If that's the new cultural norm. This is the Christological norm. What's the Christological norm? I'm not going anywhere. And you get that strength from this altar. The more you intentionally receive the mystery, the more you can say that to your husband and your wife. Why? Because you're such a good guy? No. Because you're such a weak guy. And you're receiving the strength of the mystery here, which will secure your word, the vows, I'm not going anywhere. The insurance for those words is this mystery at the altar. Good husband, good wife will always be one who worships. If your husband stops worshiping, something evil is going to happen. What's that? He's going to transfer his needs for perfection onto you. If your wife stops worshiping, something evil is going to happen. She's going to transfer her needs for perfection onto you. But the one who worships, they know where perfection lies. And they would never expect it from their spouse. Because they know that all the needs for perfection are satisfied in God. And whenever you feel like you want your husband or wife to be perfect, the best response is, I better pray deeper because I'm about to impose 
an impossible burden on my spouse. The burden of perfection. So I better get those perfection needs met by God. So at 3 p.m. today, this sort of an optional time with Jesus. I know some, I say optional because I know some of you will be meeting with me and um, it'll overlap a lot of those times. So that's okay. We just keep meeting through the adoration. And I think exactly at 3 p.m., there'll be the divine mercy, the divine mercy with exposition. And then I think we'll see you back here at 4 p.m. if someone's got the schedule. Is that right? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Bridegroom of the Church, we ask that indeed you move us through grace to stay in love. <laughs>